0: Hello, humans. I sincerely hope you're doing well. It's been a doozy of a week for me. I really feel like I'm going through some kind of spiritual initiation and or metamorphosis. I did have a psychic validate that for me recently. She said that that is what is happening for me. So that's nice. It doesn't take away the uncomfortable spot that I'm in. You know, those spots that crop up when you dig into deeper layers of shadow work. Yeah, not the most comfortable, but initiations lead to growth and adventure. And if you're lucky, deeper magic. So I'm here for the ride. Does anybody else feel like they're in the middle of a major mental, emotional, and or spiritual transition? I know the pandemic instigated a lot of shadow work and uncommon growth, I'll say, for people. So if you're there with me, just remember there are phases to initiations, which means that our shitty feelings cannot last forever. So if you're in the shit spiritually or otherwise, just know you're not alone. Anyway, this week we are diving back into aliens or non-human entities, whatever you wish to call them. And why not, right? There's a lot of movement happening in the news regarding UFOs right now. So it seems of the moment. In fact, just a couple days ago, an international team of scientists led by a prominent Harvard astronomer announced a new initiative to look for evidence of technology built by extraterrestrials. It's called the Galileo Project, and has so far been funded with $1.75 million from private donors. The project aims to create a global network of telescopes, cameras, and computers to investigate UFOs. It also includes researchers from Harvard, Princeton, Cambridge, Caltech, and the University of Stockholm. So that's a big deal. I'm always hoping that the aliens will save us from ourselves. I mean... They have to think we are so dumb, right? I think about that a lot. Like, I try to pull myself into, like, the aerial view and look down at humans. Observing us must be, like, one facepalm after another for them. While our planet is being slowly destroyed by the byproducts of our ignorance and greed, the richest men in the world are, what are they doing? trying to get to space and rockets that look like penises just for shits. Why not use that money to, oh, I don't know, end homelessness? Or shit, if that's too lofty, maybe Bezos should donate to the Galileo Project. I'm sorry, I'm ranting. I really am super excited about my guest, Kathleen Martin. You may have heard of her. She is extremely well-known in the ufology world. She's also the niece of Barney and Betty Hill, who were an American couple who claimed they were abducted by extraterrestrials in a rural part of New Hampshire in September 1961. This was the first widely publicized report of an alien abduction in the United States. Kathleen spent 15 years investigating her aunt and uncle's abduction case. She was also the director of the experience or resource team for 10 years at MUFON, and she still works as a consultant there. For those of you that don't know, MUFON stands for the Mutual UFO Network, and it is the largest civilian-based network in the world that studies UFOs and non-human entities. Kathleen's been a leading ufologist since 1990 and has been researching the nature of UFOs and non-human entities not through the work of others, but via her own groundbreaking research, investigation, and experimentation. Her research has extended to archival collections and the U.S. government's involvement in the investigation of UFOs and its major studies. Basically, she has a depth of knowledge on this topic that few possess. She's worked on three comprehensive studies on nearly 5,000 experiencers, two of which she initiated and saw to the end, and has five professionally published books. Her bestseller with nuclear physicist Stanton T. Friedman is called Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. The 60th anniversary edition of the book is now out, and it has loads of updated information. Her essays have been published in several books and magazines, and she's given loads of on-camera commentary on the Discovery, History, National Geographic, Destination America, Science, and Travel Channels, and on several documentaries. Most recently, her work has been featured on Ancient Aliens and several other Travel Channel shows. She's also a certified practitioner of regression hypnosis and the quantum healing hypnosis technique. What's so compelling about my chat with her is how much data she's collected over her years of research. We talk about that data, her experiences at MUFON, the story of Betty and Barney Hill, the special abilities that many experiencers now have, generational abductions, and more. But Kathleen emphasized that the most important thing we talk about is the messages the entities have for us. And that's sort of where we're going to drop in on this conversation. You know the drill. Hold on to your butt cheeks and get ready for the
1: woo. You know, I do enjoy talking about the messages that the non-human entities are passing to so many humans and have been since 1954. I think that's important because I'm trying to get that message out Fear cells And just so many people are so fearful of this and shouldn't be.
0: It seems like when I was doing my research on you and Stanton Friedman, it sounded like there was a lot of back and forth about, is it really happening? Is it not really happening? And less focus on What's the actual message that these hundreds, thousands of people are gaining that they're hearing from these entities? Is that true? Is it more about kind of the skeptics versus the non skeptics? And
1: then? Not anymore. Okay, good. Uh, That was Stanton's focus. And when Stanton and I did interviews together, I had to comply with what he wanted to do. And he was extremely conservative. I've worked on three major studies with experiencers. I am an experiencer, generational experiencer. So I have loads of information that I couldn't talk about when I was with Stanton doing interviews.
0: Right. You said 1954, these messages have been coming through since then. Why that date?
1: Well, it's interesting that when I was interviewing my aunt, Betty Hill, extensively, the topic of Admiral Herbert Knowles came up. And when he died, he left her several books. So we were talking about that and about her relationship with Admiral and Helen Knowles, his wife. And she told me about how they had done a lot of research with the Canadian scientist Wilbert Smith. He was Canada's UFO scientist. So I wanted to know more, and I learned as much as I could and put it into my first book, Captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, but I didn't have all the information. So when I was speaking on radio shows and speaking at conferences, I would mention that I was looking for a relative of the Knowles family because I wanted to find the correspondence files between the two men. And Admiral Knowles' granddaughter met me at a conference, carried up a thick packet of information, and it had the correspondence files. They had been working with the Canadian military, the U.S. military, the CIA, and a letter even went to Dwight Eisenhower. So there was a lot of secret government interest in all of this. And in the letters, they talked about what messages had been passed to a woman named Frances Swan, who lived in Elliott, Maine, the same town that Admiral Knowles lived in. And they had been studying her and the messages that she gave and looking for evidence that all of this was true. And they did find evidence, but entities, even back then, were talking about how they were here, they were concerned about our use of nuclear weapons. That when thermonuclear weapons were detonated, it caused tears in sort of the space time fabric between dimensions, and one dimension would bleed into another. And it created problems, not just for us, but for people who lived in other dimensions as well. So they said that they had come here, that there was a problem with our magnetic fault lines and that they were repairing those magnetic fault lines. And actually, Wilbert Smith, the Canadian scientist, found evidence that the fault lines were being repaired. Also, they said that these non-human entities were here. They come from time to time to assist in our development. They are here to educate humans, to upgrade us, to assist in our development, and that they will share their technology equally with leaders around the world and 1954 why did you use that date specifically
0: was that the earliest correspondence you found
1: yes that is when francis swan started to receive those messages got it
0: okay i want to backtrack a little bit just so the listeners who don't know who you are how this
1: started for you what is your role at mufon I am now a consultant to the Experiencer Resource Team, but for 10 years, I was the director of the Experiencer Resource Team and built it from three people to 45 caring, compassionate people who support experiencers on a day-to-day basis.
0: Right. And again, for the listeners who don't know, MUFON is a mutual UFO network, and it is a non-judgmental place where you can essentially log your experience and then also speak with someone if you wish. Is that correct?
1: Well, what you need to do, and if you don't want to be interrogated by an investigator, then (laughs) you need to scroll down to the Experiencer Resource Team at MUFON.com. And then click on the link to that to speak with a member of the team. When you get to the next page, it says complete the experiencer questionnaire. It's a very simple true-false 30 questions. And the score doesn't matter. You can get a score of 30 but not be an experiencer. And you can get a score of 10 and be an experiencer. I think a lot of people take that and the questionnaire and they might score like 15 and they think that, oh, I did poorly. No one will want to talk to me because they think I'm not having these experiences. They're not true. 15 is a good, solid score.
0: And MUFON is the worldwide network. And as far as I understand, that's the only one that is the way it is, right?
1: It is. It's the the largest civilian investigative group in the world. Which is amazing and
0: such an incredible resource for how many thousands of people would you say in your experience so far?
1: Oh, my gosh. The people who have contacted us. Well, during the 10 years that I was director, we received about 100 reports every month. Wow. You know, it's a lot. That's
0: a lot. (laughs) and. Would you
1: call yourself a ufologist? I'm a UFO contact researcher. I'm also a hypnotherapist and quantum healing hypnosis practitioner. I haven't practiced since the beginning of COVID though. And so. that's
0: Dolores Cannon's work, correct? Is that? Yes. Okay. Yes. She passed away about five years ago or something? She, quite a while ago. Yeah. 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 I'm not familiar too closely with her technique, but I have heard it before. And I, I want to loop back around to that part of your work and how you use hypnosis to help people remember their abduction or contactee experiences. So we'll come back to that. But I want to start with Betty and Barney Hill. How did you become the person you are today? I mean, what's that original thing that happened that just launched you into this trajectory?
1: I was 13 years old. I had arrived home from school in the afternoon and my mother told me that she had been speaking with my aunt Betty Hill and that they had gone on a short vacation to Niagara Falls. And I have to say, I felt a little responsible for this because the previous month, I had photographs of Niagara Falls. I'd gone there with another aunt that summer and had a wonderful time showing the family the photographs. And Barney said to Betty, have you ever been to Niagara Falls? And she said, no, she hadn't. So he decided to surprise her during her week off as a social worker for the state of New Hampshire with this trip to Niagara Falls, that's how it all started. And they did the tourist thing through Niagara Falls, Canada, Ontario, Quebec. And then they decided to return home at night because there was a hurricane whirling up the coast, and it ended up being a tropical storm. But they were having a nice time together and entered New Hampshire. And in upstate New Hampshire, it was about 9 to 9.30 at night when they stopped at a restaurant in Colebrook, New Hampshire, and had a little bit to eat. And then they proceeded south. And Betty observed a new light in the sky. And she knew it wasn't a falling star because it flew upward but kind of in an arcing fashion. And she's continued to watch this thing. And it came in closer and closer and closer. They stopped and took a look at it, got back into the car and drove on and saw it passing over Cannon Mountain, which is at the mouth of Franconia Notch. Franconia Notch is a beautiful place in New Hampshire, for those who don't know. It's a very popular wilderness area. There is a ski area at Cannon Mountain, and just mountains on both sides of the road. They came upon the old man of the mountain, and there was the craft hovering beside the old man's profile. The Old Man of the Mountain, for those who don't know, was just a naturally occurring stone structure on the side of a mountain that looked like an old man's profile. And it was New Hampshire state symbol for a long time, but it fell off the mountain in 2003. It was 48 (laughs) feet from forehead to chin. And when Betty and Barney saw that craft, they realized that it was one and a half to two times the length of the old man's profile. Wow. And it appeared to be rotating. And then it started moving. It was ascending and descending vertically. It was traveling in a stair-step pattern. It was bouncing back and forth in the sky like a ping-pong ball. They were driving as they were watching this, mostly Betty watching it. But Barney would stop momentarily to take a look. And so they exited the south entrance of Franconia Notch. And this is where they came into the area where there were motels and tourist attractions. And Betty was becoming excited because the craft was coming in very, very close. And she was telling Barney to pull over. And he realized that something was going on because Betty didn't become excited very easily before he could find a place to pull over. The craft surged ahead and stopped 200 feet above their car. Barney had to bring the car to a halt. He took his binoculars. He stepped out of the car. He's looking up at this craft. And then he stepped back. And when he did, the craft shifted to an adjacent field and descended even lower. He walked into the field, looking at it through binoculars. He didn't believe that UFOs could possibly be real. And he was having a moment of cognitive dissonance. He just could not believe this. And then he was able to see non-human entities dressed in shiny black uniforms looking down at him. Suddenly, all but one turned and went to a panel. Their arms went up. He could see them now from the tops of their heads down to their knees. And when that happened little lights started to slide out, little sort of fin-like structures with little red lights. And something started to drop down out of the bottom of the craft. Today, we know that that's the carrier beam, that it's interdimensional, and the ETs come down looking like orbs, and they take the human who becomes an orb, I believe, up into the craft. Barney rightfully became terrified that he was (laughs) going to be captured. (laughs) His intuition was correct. So he went screaming back to the car that they had to get out of there. They were going to be captured. And when he was entering the car, he saw the craft moving in his direction. And he started speeding down the highway. And he said to Betty, roll down your window and look up. I think they're over the car. Well, she looked up. And all she could see was blackness, even though it was a bright light night and the moon was about three quarters full. So she rolled the window back up and within five or six blocks, she and Barney heard a series of cold like buzzing sounds striking the trunk of the car. The car vibrated and an electrical tingling sensation passed through their bodies. In fact, she felt metal on the car to see if she would get a shock, but she didn't. And the next thing they knew, they were 35 miles south. They heard a second series of buzzing sounds on the trunk of the car. They didn't see the craft this time. So they went on driving back to the seacoast area of New Hampshire, Portsmouth, where they lived. They were looking for a restaurant that was open. Nothing was open. They were looking for a police officer. They had no idea then that they were missing two hours time. They anticipated that they would arrive home at two in the morning, three at the latest. And when they arrived home, it was already daylight. Barney got out of the car, went into the bathroom, took his shoes off and noticed that the toes of his shoes were so deeply scraped, was his word for it, that he had to purchase new shoes. He was a meticulous dresser. He had no explanation. For how that occurred. Betty's dress was torn in several places. The hem was torn down on one side. The lining was torn from waist to hemline. And the zipper that ran up the back of her dress was damaged. There was a one-inch tear in the thick zipper fabric. There was a two-inch tear in the stitching along the zipper. It was a wreck. She put it in her closet And the next time she took it out of her closet, it was covered with a pink powdery substance. So the dress was ruined. She put it on the clothesline, the powder blew away, but she decided to keep the dress instead of throwing it out because she thought it might hold a clue. what had happened that night. They took long showers because they thought they had been contaminated. They sat down in separate rooms and sketched what they had observed. They took a nap and then she called my mother. Barney said, don't tell anyone about this. No good can ever come of it. But she said, I have to call Janet. That was my mother's name. And see what she has to say about this. I had arrived home from school. I was 13 years old. And my mother had talked on the phone to Betty about Betty's concern. My mother did call the physicist. And the physicist, for some reason, said, if Betty has a compass, tell her to take it out to the car to see how the needle reacts. Now, we know the needle is going to react to the battery up at the hood of the car. But Betty started on the side of the car. And when she got to the trunk of the car, she noticed very shiny spots about the size of half dollars. They hadn't been there the day before. They were in the precise location where they heard those buzzing sounds striking the trunk of the car. And the needle whirled when she held the compass over it. The neighbor saw this, Barney saw this. I believe that my mother saw this too. The needle world indicating that there was a magnetic field around the trunk of the car that shouldn't have been there. So that was highly significant. As an investigator, I say that's highly significant because we have found other cases where individuals who were abducted had the same kind of experience. And in addition to this, there was the emotional impact this had on Betty and Barney. 10 nights after this occurred, Betty had a series of five dreams. She had the dreams early in the morning, just before she woke up. When you have them at early in the morning, like this, tend to be in a hypnotic state. So, Betty's in a hypnotic state. She remembers some of the memory, yet she fills in the parts where she has anxiety with fantasy material. Now, that material could have been of advanced technology that she is perceiving in 1961 technology and entities that appear to be very human in the dream, but who are not human later under separate hypnosis sessions. And that's what occurred. So they ended up going to Dr. Benjamin Simon. They had a referral in 1963, because that was when Barney finally had had enough of the post-traumatic stress that he was suffering as a result of this experience. He was the one who's, who had conscious recall of observing these non-humans and fearing that he was going to be abducted. Betty didn't have conscious recall. And in her dreams, they seemed very human. Barney was hospitalized. With bleeding ulcers, high blood pressure. He had to take a three month leave of absence from work. And they were referred to Dr. Benjamin Simon, who was a renowned psychiatrist who had developed a special technique using deep trans hypnosis to resolve psychogenically induced trauma. And that's what Barney had. And he had worked very successfully with soldiers returning from the war front during World War II. In fact, the movie Let There Be Light was made about his work. He wasn't a believer in alien abduction or contact with ETs, but he was the best person for Barney to see to resolve his problems. Barney and Betty went together together. And Betty told Dr. Simon that she wanted hypnosis too, because she wanted to know if her dreams were real. And so he agreed to see both of them separately and to reinstate amnesia at the end of each session so they couldn't share information that could contaminate one another's material. And this was important to me because... My background is in social work and social research, and I really wanted to do a comparative analysis of Betty's and Barney's statements in hypnosis. So Betty gave me the hypnosis session tapes, and I transcribed them, and I did a comparative analysis of their statements under hypnosis as they were describing their vacation trip and also the, the observation of the UFO, and also the part that they didn't remember. And I wanted to know for myself if this was indeed an abduction experience. Incidentally, Dr. Simon did say to Barney, do you believe that you were kidnapped? And Barney said, no, I wasn't kidnapped. Because when I think of kidnapping, I think of people being harmed. And he said, but I wasn't harmed. Betty and Barney did not undergo a horrific experience. It was the fear that created the problem and fear colors one's perception of the experience. So Barney had post-traumatic stress disorder, but it was resolved. And I have worked with other experiencers who are suffering from post-traumatic stress. I always refer them to a psychotherapist who uses EMDR, rapid eye movement therapy, to resolve the problem or some other type of therapy that is successful. I think that it is important to say that other people who have had traumatic stress have this because... They don't know what happened. It was sort of ontological shock that they were suffering, but they end up having these wonderful experiences that are not bad at all. Like Barney, they're not harmed. So I think it's important to say that. I don't use the term abduction commonly. I prefer to use the term contact. Or experience, but I have also worked on three major studies where we separated those who had the characteristics of abductees Mm. from experiencers in general. And they do have certain characteristics at a higher rate than experiencers in general. And those characteristics are things like heightened spirituality, uh, being an empath which is a psychic sense, in 100%. And I think this is brilliant if this is what the ETs are doing, because if you are an empath, you can't harm others because you feel their pain. You experience it as if it is your own pain. If they're concerned about warlike humans... It's brilliant, I think, to cause us to experience the consequences of our own behavior.
0: Yeah, that's an incredible initial story. And I know there's a book specifically about that that dives deeper into that. But I want to go back to you're 13 and your mom (laughs) gets this call on the phone. And how were you just sort of like, mom, mom, what is she saying? You know, I mean, were you when you heard that, okay, my aunt just experienced this unbelievable thing, did it spark some kind of insatiable curiosity in you? And then how old were you when you did that comparative analysis with Betty and Barney? How old were you and how old, how long had that been from their their experience?
1: Okay, so I was 13, as I said, when this happened. And it really sparked my curiosity. I'd never heard of UFOs before, and I was highly curious, and I immediately developed an interest in astronomy. My father bought a telescope for me, and we went out and we looked at the stars at night, and we identified the stars and the constellations and looked at the moon and you know, that sort of thing. So I wanted to know as much as I could about our solar system. And I wasn't even thinking about the, the galaxy at, at that point in time. So I I was just highly interested. I, I was like, I want to go down. I want to hear the story for myself. I want to see the evidence. And so within two days, I mean, I talked my parents <laughs> into driving the 19 miles from our my childhood home to Betty and Barney's home in Portsmouth. So I did have the opportunity to talk to Betty and to see the evidence and try to wipe off those spots on the trunk of the car, which kind of freaked my mother out. And and she said, oh, they might harm you. Move away. Move away. And they escorted us into the house. My father sat quietly with Barney, who was waiting for a call from Pease Air Force Base because they had called to make a report. And they were waiting for another call. So Barney was not his usual jovial self that day. He was very serious and and quiet with my father. So we were warned uh, as children not to bother barney
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> so you you did the this this early like comparing evidence as a teen as a preteen i mean or a, a young teenager you were already like precocious enough and and interested enough to get involved and they allowed you to do that
1: yes wow yes but that's not when i did the comparative analysis i did the comparative analysis after i had given up my professional career and this was in the 1990s i gave up my professional career because i developed chronic fatigue, and immune dysfunction syndrome. I had waxing and waning symptoms that were like mononucleosis. And so I ended up leaving my highly successful profession, regretfully, because I loved what I was doing. I had been writing, I was running a program, an experimental program, and writing professionally about this. And so I thought, what can I do? And I thought, oh, I have always wanted to be a professional writer. Maybe I can write my aunt's biography. And so my aunt would come to visit me at least once a week when I was ill. So I started working with her then, interviewing her. And then as I became uh, better, further periods of time between illness, I was able to drive to her home and did this two to three times a week to do further interviews and to travel the route with her that she and Barney traveled. And this is when she gave me the hypnosis tapes. And I told her I wanted to transcribe them for comparative analysis, which I did. They were hypnotized separately. And amnesia was reinstated at the end of each session. So I had material that was uncontaminated by the other. And so I wasn't a good typist then, but I typed all of those sessions, 11 hours of sessions. And then I started lining up their statements. I was looking at their speaking style, who was more descriptive than the other, who thought more about what they were saying than the other. And I compared their statements for their conscious recall, and then their statements for the part that they didn't have conscious recall. And then I lined that up against Betty's dream material. She had written about these five dreams that she had starting 10 days after their encounter. And that was really interesting for me during the 1990s. And that was part of what made me decide that I needed to expand beyond just a biography on Betty, but to include my uncle in that and to include my research on their UFO abduction. And in that, I included all of the scientific research that had been done The original research or investigative reports, they had been interviewed by Walter Webb, an astronomer who worked at the Hayden Planetarium in Boston, Massachusetts. He was a member of the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, and Betty had sent a letter to him describing the entities that Barney had observed on the craft. This was just shortly after they made the report to Pease Air Force Base and also the flight pattern, their emotional response and that sort of thing. So I had information from all of the researchers that they had worked with and investigators as well. It was just so interesting and had never been published before that I wanted the public to know about this. And I, I did this in an unbiased manner. If I thought that Betty and Barney had just made a mistake, if they had only restated her dreams, then I was going to say that because Betty and Barney were outstanding people, standing alone. They never wanted this story to be told to the public. Betty was a social worker for the state of New Hampshire. Barney worked for the post office. He and Betty were also actively involved in the civil rights movement. They were an interracial couple in New Hampshire. They were married in 1960. In 1964, as they're keeping all of this secret, they were talking to scientists and researchers and the family and close friends, but we were sworn to secrecy. Barney, in 1965, was appointed to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights as a representative for the state of New Hampshire. He also received an award from Sergeant Shriver who was the head of the US government's poverty program for the work he and Betty and others did to set up a program to help underprivileged people? Barney was the chairman of the board of directors for that, the first chairman on the board of directors after they set that up. So this is who Betty and Barney were. They they weren't a couple of UFO nuts. Yeah. <laughs> but unfortunately, there was a violation of confidentiality. And in October of 1965, their story and the hypnosis appeared in a Boston newspaper, and it really had a huge impact on their lives. I was very angry at that point and, and still carry some anger about that because this was done against their wishes. Do you think that was racially motivated at that time? Possibly. I don't think it was racially motivated. I think that I know that one of those UFO investigators who happened to be a woman who was a friend of Betty's spilled the beans to this newspaper reporter who she knew and who lived in the same town. He named her. And... Also, he wrote a letter to Betty and Barney saying, I want to meet with you. And they said, absolutely not. He did it anyway. He wrote wrote the the story anyway. He wrote the story. He contacted people from Pease Air Force Base offices there, interviewed them. And he looked further. And I, I can forgive him for that because he found 12 to 14 witnesses to the craft that night. Wow, that is one of the new things that I have written about in the update on my book Captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience with Stanton T. Friedman, nuclear physicist. It's the 60th anniversary edition. It's on the market now. It's very easy to get a copy of that. Go to my website at Kathleen-Marden, M-A-R-D-E-N, and get an autographed copy of it. Excellent.
0: 12 to 14 witnesses, that was found
1: later or at that, that was, time? That was found later. I don't know if he he, I, he didn't mention it in the articles, but Stanton Friedman had written to him in the 1970s when Stanton was investigating the case and wanted to know if he was ever able to find anyone else in that part of New Hampshire who had observed the craft on the same night. And John Luttrell, who was the newspaper reporter, wrote back and said, yes, I have interviewed 12 to 14 witnesses and they observed the same craft at the same time. And he said that he knew that because he took the location of the witness and the position of the craft at any particular time where Betty and Barney were. And he was able to draw lines that intersected with the craft. And these were not a group of people. These were people who were either individuals or couples who observed the craft that night. But he said to Stanton, I do not want you to distribute this information. I don't want you to reveal anything about me because I am now working as a hospital administrator in a conservative hospital. And I might lose my job if I cause problems for the hospital. So Stanton gave him the courtesy that he did not give to Betty and Barney. And it wasn't until before Stanton passed away, that I received this correspondence between Stanton and John Luttrell and wow. John Luttrell is now deceased.
0: Incredible. Yeah. Just for one slip second, I want to go back to what your family and their reaction. Did you your parents, did they think that your aunt and uncle were batshit at any point? Did they have a moment where they were like, what are you talking about? No,
1: they didn't.
0: Because of the kind of people they were. They were like, they wouldn't make this up.
1: They wouldn't make that up. And only not only that, but on that day when my mother hung up the phone from speaking to Betty on that first day when they arrived home, my mother said to me, well, yes, they're real. I saw one and I hadn't heard of that before. She was with another aunt when they were out grocery shopping on a Friday night. They're traveling home from the shopping trip, and there is a cigar-shaped craft hovering over a field near my childhood home. They uh, stopped and knocked on the door of some of our neighbors. They went out and saw it, too. And there were smaller disc-shaped crafts that were flying around it. So... (laughs) So of course, I had no idea.
0: <laughs> yeah, so of course your mom is not going to think she's in that job because she had her own experience.
1: My father was kind of a lot like Barney, just intelligent, self-controlled. And he told me when he spoke with Barney that Barney was very aware of observing these non-humans on this craft that he was concerned about it, but my father believed everything that Barney said.
0: Remind me again how Barney described these beings, because I know a lot of times people who are not familiar with how many different kinds of contact situations there are and how many people call in, that they're, they're not all grays or what we think of as grays. Did What did these guys look like or these beings look like?
1: Well, I can tell you how Barney described them before hypnosis and how Betty and Barney described them after or in hypnosis. Before hypnosis, Barney described them as being of humanoid form, meaning that they had a torso, two arms, two legs, and a head. And they were dressed in black, shiny uniforms. So that was what he said about them. Before, he was so shocked by what he observed that he developed a mental block, but he said that they were somehow not human. For Betty, they looked human. They looked Southern European, about five and a half feet tall, Black hair, large noses, human features, everything about them was human. They were wearing caps on their heads that were uh, like cadet hats and uh, cadet uniforms that were blue. And But that's not what they remembered under hypnosis. Under hypnosis, they both remembered being met in the road by these entities that had spindly legs large upper bodies, heads that were larger in proportion to their bodies than humans. And there were two groups. One group was four and a half to five feet tall. The other group was about three and a half to four feet tall. And the smaller ones we think of as the greys, they're the ones who are the assistants and the guards. So they might even be bio robotic. We're not certain that they are actually sentient beings, these smaller ones, but they do the collection work, the, that sort of thing, acting, acting as assistants and guards. Betty and Barney found out how their clothing and, their sh- and the shoes had been ruined on the craft, which is all in the book, and they were taken to craft, to separate examining rooms, and the individuals who were what I call now the escort, Betty called them the leader, him the leader. There, were also, there was also the examiner. There were other crew members who looked not like those little grays. They resembled them. They looked like they might be related to them somehow, but their heads were not as large in proportion to, to the body. They still were not human. They had grayish skin. They were inside a blue lighted room, though, those blue lights shining through the walls. So we'll never know if they were actually gray or if it was just this light that caused them to appear gray. They had eyes that are larger than human eyes. Betty and Barney described them as reminding them of cat's eyes because they glowed in the dark. They did not have ears. They did not have prominent noses. They just had two kind of upturned nostrils. They did not have lips. Their face was flat. They were telepathic. When their mouths opened, the little ones, there was a sound that came from their mouths. But Betty and Barney understood it in English. And when the taller ones communicated with them telepathically, they very easily understood it in English. I've
0: heard that before. Quick on that, I just wanted to to follow up. Their hypnosis regressions matched up as far as the description of the beings. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. And also they made other statements that caused me to believe they really were taken, that You know, all of this was true. Betty might have confabulated a little bit. There might have been a little dream material in that. But her description of the technology under hypnosis simply did not match the technology in her dreams.
0: Wow. And I realize that listeners, if they want to know more about this, they should go and buy this book. And they should probably buy the 60th anniversary edition because that's going to have the extra details about the 12 to 14
1: witnesses and all of the scientific evidence that has been investigated in scientific laboratories since the first book was written in 2007 since it was published the book is also available as an audiobook and as an ebook so it's it's available in multiple formats
0: and i'll put that link in the show notes for everybody as well so you're your aunt and your uncle have an experience. Your mom says, I believe them, not just because they're upstanding citizens, but also because I had my own experience. And then you mentioned, I think briefly that you had a direct experience. Did this happen before the 1990s when you started doing this biography or after?
1: It happened before.
0: Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: I'm not certain how old I was when this began. I've had some hypnosis, but I also had conscious recall. So when I was a teenager, and I'm I'm dating it April 1966, Betty was working with a team of scientists attempting to uh, get them to come in and land on my grandparents' farm. And then the scientists would collect whatever they could in terms of physical trace evidence. So she had done this for a few months. A lot of people in that area were observing UFOs in that time frame. And my grandmother and one of our neighbors who was returning home from work at night saw this craft come in and land. I grew up across the street from my grandparents it landed 250 feet from my childhood home. My mother and I had memories of being on craft. Being on craft. Of being taken to craft. Two months before that, we had a close encounter with a craft and one of those lights that is not like turning on a light bulb, but comes in a measured fashion Came toward my mother when she screamed, and this was a multiple witness event, and we took off rapidly in the vehicle. So, yes, my mother was an experiencer, and this happened to me. I'm not sure if I was 17. I know from the studies that I've worked on that the majority of experiencers, nearly 80%, were taken for the first time when they were less than 20 years old, and about 37% were five years old or less. Hmm. So children. Interesting.
0: And that, yeah. that makes sense. I've, I've heard that before. I want to ask about the what your research has shown you as far as family lineages too, because it seems like you've got these beings or multiple beings liked your family. They liked your aunt and yes. uncle. They liked your mom. They liked you. What do you, what do you think about that?
1: Well, we also asked the question, have you had a close encounter with a craft? Has your family member had a close encounter? Yes and yes. Have you had an abduction experience where you were awake but were then paralyzed? 60% of the abductee group said yes. Has your family been abducted? Are you aware of a family member who has been abducted? 60% of the abductee group said yes. That's remarkable. Yes. So they they know for certain that this has happened to other members of the family. I mean, it's probably higher than that, but the family hasn't discussed it.
0: Right. I imagine there's a lot of people like that.
1: Because of the societal taboo against it.
0: You mentioned sleep paralysis as being something that is a a common experience for people who have had contact. I mean, is that happening with people who are also explaining that beings are there like that they're seeing beings? Or are they just saying, Oh, I'm, I'm in paralysis, and I experienced some kind of sound or I experienced a voice or, I mean, is it always a really clear picture that it's like an unidentified object or saucer or a being that's an alien that's there with them? Or is it kind of all over the map.
1: Well, that was really interesting to me because the skeptics have always said it's all sleep paralysis. They're just Mm -hmm. having sleep paralysis and hypnopompic or hypnagogic hallucinations. And that, that explains the entire thing. And Dr. John Mack used to say, no, it doesn't. So I wanted to ask that question on a study that we did through MUFON of 516 experiencers. And what we found out is that 74% of the experiencers had stated they had sleep paralysis. 90% of the abductees had had sleep paralysis. So we asked, were you awake? And had entities come into your environment before you were paralyzed? And so how that turned out was, only thirty six percent of the experiencers overall said that that had happened to them, but with the abductee group, it was sixty percent. Hmm.
0: Interesting. I recently spoke to a woman who is also she works with MUFON occasionally, and she's had her own experiences that, and she's just coming out much later in life because, again, of the taboo and you know, she started asking me about my experiences. And I said that twice I've had remarkable experiences in sleep paralysis. I did experience voices and unusual phenomena, I'll say, but I didn't have, I had visuals and there were certain entities there. I felt awake, but also unable to move my body. And she said that I was a prime candidate for regression, hypnosis, and that a lot of people actually have similar experiences like that and find that it was much more elaborate experience, but that I don't remember it because it's buried for whatever reason. Do you find that true? And why do you think it's buried? Is it just so we can kind of get along with our lives and not be freaked out? Or
1: Well, the majority of experiencers Uh, stated that they also have had dreams that seem too real to be dreams. If you want to know if it's sleep paralysis or something else, then you can go to my website and under Essays on Contact, you will find an article about that. I have a lot of information for experiencers on my website. My book, the next to the latest book, Extraterrestrial Contact, What to Do When You've Been Abducted is a book that I wrote for experiencers. So there are a lot of things to look for when you're trying to determine whether or not you have had these experiences with non-human entities. So I encourage people to do their own investigation because if you have an investigator come out, they're gonna be looking for physical evidence. And if you don't have a substantial amount of physical evidence, they're going to feel like it's a waste of their time. They're going to look for a prosaic explanation like sleep paralysis or um, hoaxing or something like that.
0: Right. And th- when you say an investigator coming out, you do you mean MUFON, somebody from MUFON?
1: Not necessarily, but a MUFON investigator. If you make your report in MUFON, I'm not going to criticize MUFON investigators, but they look for physical evidence. Gotcha. Yeah. So that's what they look for.
0: I have a fear of aliens, I think, in a way that one might have a fear of the ocean because it's big and we just don't know what's under there at any Mm -hmm. given moment. I think it's that same kind of fear. It's just the unknown. A lot of people think of aliens, and I think the media has a huge influence on this, as across the board, bad, bad guys. They're just the bad guys. What has been your experience? I know earlier you were saying they have good messages for us. They're making us more empathic. That's great. What do you you have to say about the good and the bad aliens? You know, (laughs) how do you feel about that?
1: What I have to tell you is that before I underwent hypnosis with Denise Stoner, who is just a, a wonderfully compassionate person, I was scared silly i was petrified i was traumatized when i would go to a ufo group or even a support group for the first time i was i was shaking inside it was it was so difficult but i i broke through finally and and was able to remember that how i was treated i had some conscious recall of that but It had been implanted in my mind that if they are doing tissue samples, then they're treating me like a lab rat. But I remembered that they told me why they were taking tissue samples from my body. And it was because they were testing me for the level of toxicity in my body. They're very concerned about environmental toxicity. I grew up less than a mile away from a Superfund site that was dumping neurotoxins into the stream that fed the water that I drank and went into the lake that we were swimming in. I grew up 20 miles away from a nuclear base and 20 miles away from a naval submarine, nuclear submarine installation where submarines were being built. So there it makes perfect sense to me now. I finally realized that they they were saying to me there's no reason to be fearful. We love you. They were projecting the most intense feeling of love toward me. I had never experienced that kind of love on this planet.
0: And that um, memory is from hypnosis, correct? Or is yes. that conscious? It's hard to tell now, right?
1: <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah. I'm not sure if it was. I think that. I think it was part of my conscious recall, but I'm not certain.
0: Yeah. I like that you say, but I'm not certain. It's the investigator in you as a scared you thought it was you being a lab rat that was being kind of like diced, sliced and diced. And the and the sort of integrated you and the more aware you realized that they were doing it out of compassion, and it was to just see if you were super toxic. Interesting, that journey that you go through, is that what MUFON tries to do, get people to go from scared to empowered?
1: That's what I try to do. That's my agenda. I started this as an experiencer advocate and have reached out to thousands of people and you know developed a team of, of 45 hearing compassionate people. They've been trained to to help experiencers. So yes, that's that's really important. I, I think that people need to explore this further. I was just reading the frightening stuff, the bad stuff that was uh, the literature that was being published. By researchers in that time frame, who had a personal experience or a personal opinion that it was all bad. In fact, I underwent hypnosis with one of these, and uh, researchers, and they were being very nice and very kind to me, and they said they loved me. And this, re- I said that, and the researcher said, "Don't believe them." they lie. Never trust an alien. He was projecting his personal opinion. He was not an experiencer, but he was projecting his personal opinion on me as a suggestion while I was in hypnosis. The worst thing you could ever do to anyone. Yeah. I have a very strong personality and I was angry with him for that (laughs) but anyone who thought of him as someone who was an authority figure who knew everything might be even more frightened right you know so it's dangerous good yeah it was dangerous and he wasn't trained he wasn't certified
0: so going back to good and bad it sounds like there's both yes there's both good and bad just like there's good and bad humans. And then there's nuanced humans, right? They were a little bit bad. We're a little bit good. Can we apply that to,
1: are we calling them aliens? Do you use that term? I don't know if they're really aliens or if they're interdimensional or if they're from from another planet that is interdimensional. I don't know that part of it. For A lot of people feel comfortable calling them aliens or extraterrestrials. A lot of people call them non-human intelligence. I am not comfortable w- with non-human intelligence. I would call them non-human entities. Okay. So that's that's the term that I like to use.
0: You've listened to so many different experiencers, you've collected so much data. Have you noticed that the a percentage wise is good versus bad?
1: Yes. In fact, we ask questions about the demeanor of the non-human entities themselves. And less than 6% said that they were hostile or sadistic. Less than 6%? Only 10% said that they had encountered evil entities.
0: This is the most comprehensive research on experiences, correct? So this is going to be the best information you're going to get. And the information says less than 6% is bad. Yes. A bad experience. That's, yes. that's incredible.
1: That, that they're sadistic or hostile.
0: Yeah. And you know, the media that says that maybe dismayed. like a hundred percent
1: is. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we did ask the question Do you want it to stop? If you could end these experiences today, would you? Among the experiencer group, 71% said, No, I don't want it to stop. Among the abductees, Seventy five percent said, no, I don't want it to stop.
0: Seventy five percent. Oh, my gosh.
1: I mean, (laughs) people are being healed. Among the general experiencer group, only 10 percent said they'd been healed by these extraterrestrials. Among the abductees, 45 percent had been healed from some kind of physiological ailment by these non-humans. I personally was healed. I talked about chronic fatigue and immune dysfunction syndrome. I asked for healing. Four days later, I was taken. I woke up in bed, actually. I was in terrific pain, but I was also tingling. I woke my husband up and said, I don't know if I'm dying or what's going on. I'm in awful pain. You, we, you might have to call the ambulance. And he said, well, why don't you wait a few minutes and we'll see. So he, went, he fell asleep again. I was taken. As far as I know, what I recalled under hypnosis was that I was on a table, my whole body was tingling. There were two tall entities near my head who were glowing from what I could see through my peripheral vision. I saw, I don't know if it was a screen or if it was a holographic image, but I saw a human body lying in a prone position. And I saw what seemed like energy going around the periphery of what I thought was my body. I also saw certain organs that were highlighted in mint green and pink. I woke up the next day completely healed, and I have not had a relapse since that occurred in 2012. Wow.
0: And that was just, you had had that for some time
1: a long time yeah yes. it's
0: over a decade right
1: and yes, it waxed and waned it came
0: back and it wasn't until you said very firmly and and sincerely into the universe however you want to put it you you said i need help can you heal me 4 days later from that is when it happened
1: yes yes wow. 4 days later i was healed and i have not had a relapse That brings me
0: to an important question, and it is, are they allowed to help us? Because I keep hearing sort of a reoccurring theme, and that's that they can't get involved in our affairs too much. So they come up with unique ways to help us. And if we, from our hearts, ask them for help, they can help us. Is is that true? To you, you, to your
1: experience. If you are an experiencer and you ask for help, they will help you. Back in 1954, in messages that were passed to Francis Swan, who was suddenly receiving telepathic messages from these non-humans, they would appear. They had a very human appearance. They would appear in her home. The federal government was involved in all of this. You can read the article about it on my website. But she was communicating with this sort of group of of non-humans, more than one group, who said that they were here to offer their assistance to us. And if they, they were trying to speak with or communicate with the heads of state all around the world... And they were communicating with, through Francis Swan, with the U.S. government and offering their assistance. They said that they would be giving, willing to give technology to make our lives easier, but there would be only one circumstance under which they would give that technology. That it would go to every country. They would never place one country above any other. It appears that we said no, because we wanted to be number one.
0: And I've heard reference before that the US government has made a pact or some kind of, they have some kind of relationship with non-human entities. And w- would you say that you think that that, that would probably be as close to a pact or some kind of conversation that's happened between the two of them? Like,
1: I think that what they've done is that they have intentionally downed craft, and not just here, but elsewhere as well, in an effort to share technology to a certain degree. But you can only back and engineer technology that you are pretty close to being able to Develop yourself. They give you the pieces. Now there's technology that dates back to 1947, but it took many, many years to reach our level of technological development where we could actually back engineer such as with the use of the development of Kepler, for example.
0: You're saying that there was some help from these entities to reach these levels.
1: That's my opinion. I do know, and Robert Bigelow has come out recently from Bigelow Aerospace and stated that, yes, we do have alien technology. We do have materials from alien ships that we are working on, our scientists are working on. The
0: non-human entities come And they say, hey, listen, we want to help you. It's going to really help you stop being a shit show because you're such a shit show. And (laughs) but we're going to do it so compassionately. And the U.S. is like, no, we and other, you know, sort of colonial powerhouses are like, nah, we don't want it to be equal because then we can't keep this thing going that we got going. And then the non-human entities are like, well, then we're not going to help you. We can't Mm -hmm. do it like that. Why wouldn't the non-human entities just be like, screw you guys, you don't know what you're talking about. We're going to give it to everyone anyways. What do you think?
1: Well, what I think they are very concerned about is that if they intervened on too high a level where they might show themselves to humans, that sort of thing, that or the crafts in large numbers, that it could be interpreted by the military around the world as being an invasion and that we would then attempt to fight back against them and you know the thing that one thing that really bothers me about the ATIP program is that it was the advanced aerospace threat identification program you know so they're they're perceiving this as a threat even though the military, if they would only look at their own records or read my book with Stanton Friedman Fact, Fiction, and Flying Saucers, the evidence is there that they've been studying this since the mid 1940s and they have not harmed us. These ETs are concerned because of our level of spiritual development. That's an example of it. They are more interested. In using the weapons of war against other countries, so that they can be top dog, than being a planet that works together for the benefit of everyone. And it's not just us; it's uh, you know, it's some people, and and certainly leaders, many leaders around the world, who are warlike. And that's why I I wish that they would be abducted. And uh, they would be changed so that they would become empathic. Right. From having a background in sociology, I know that when a more technologically advanced society has conquered or invaded a less technologically advanced, but maybe more spiritual society, the the other society has collapsed in a sense. They've, they've lost their values. There, there has been kind of a spiritual problem that has occurred with them. When a less spiritual society has imposed their power and their technology on them, confirmation of their statement that they are concerned because our level of technological development is out of sync with our spiritual growth. That's their major concern.
0: That makes sense to me. I don't know. I'm sure that doesn't make sense to a lot of people, but to me, that makes sense. This brings me to two different topics that come up when we talk about this, and that is the Illuminati and the men in black.
1: Stay away from conspiracy theories. smart. Because there's no evidence. If they could present evidence that would verify what they're saying, that would be one thing. I do research in archival collections, physical archives. That's where I get a lot of my information. I do research in sociological studies with experiencers, with people who have PhDs. I stay away from conspiracy because there's no no real evidence. It attracts the public, the imagination, the science. Fiction end of it. But if you're going to be a legitimate UFO researcher, you reach a dead end. I see. So, in terms of men in black, I wrote a couple of things about that in my book, Captured the Case of My Aunt and Uncle. There were men dressed in black suits or suits who entered my aunt and uncle's house and did weird things. And after my uncle died, I moved in with my aunt because these things were escalating. I don't think it was ETs. I think it was representatives from the federal government who were attempting to push my aunt over the edge. Barney had died, she had lost her support system and here they were breaking into her house and doing things like taking all the clothing out of the closet and mounding it on the floor and putting Barney's scarf over the top of it, arranging chairs in a circle in her living room, taking her tax records. That happened when I was living there. And then they appeared several months later, scattered in a trail throughout her apartment.
0: And what exactly, again, do you think their intention was? Why were they pushing her over the edge to?
1: They wanted to discredit her. Mm. There was a massive effort to tell the story, reinvent what happened to Betty and Barney Hill, and to dissuade the American public from believing that any of it was consciously recalled, and to persuade the public that Betty... Was a longtime science fiction fan who was fantasy prone, who was this delusional woman. Betty finally ended up having one of the early security systems put into her apartment and it was wired into the police department. After that happened, uh, the house wasn't entered again because the police were showing up.
0: And have you, doing all the work that you do, sort of uncovering and educating people on this topic, Do you, have you had any experiences where you thought maybe somebody's messing with you or listening to what you're up to or uh, an encounter with somebody like the, the men in black?
1: Well, the only problem that I had is when Denise Stoner and I wrote the alien abduction files. I, I think that certain members of the intelligence community were concerned that people were going to be frightened by the book and we were having a lot of interference with the shows that we were do- doing to promote the book and in fact one time the entire radio circuit all of the their broadcasting equipment went down and i was recording this i was saying are, are we paranoid or or <laughs> is this really happening this frequently so i was recording it every time it happened and the sounds we heard Just before it happened, we heard certain kinds of sounds that were kind of notifying us that we were, I think, saying something they didn't think we should say. So after this collapse of the station, I went over to the phone. We were doing this via via Skype at the time. I went to the phone and I called Denise. And I said, being a smart ass, to the third person, the third party who is listening in to this phone call, I want you to know that you are violating my rights as a U.S. citizen to freedom of speech. And you are a criminal. And when I said that, all the lines went dead, completely dead. No dial tone, nothing. My line came back 15 minutes or so later. Denise's line was still dead the next day. She had to call the the telephone company, cable company who handles that. They went to her house and the technician had to have his supervisor come. His supervisor came and looked at the wires and said to Denise, do you know what this wire is going into your house? And she said, no, I don't. And he said, well, it looks like Department of Defense wire.
0: Wow. So the answer is yes, you have (laughs) been.
1: (laughs) Yes. Uh, I mean, not directly. I've been threatened by certain individuals, but I don't know. Well, I think I do know who they were, but I'm not going to say. I want
0: to ask you just a couple quicker questions about some reoccurring themes that you've noticed, like which countries or countries seems to have the most
1: experiencers, do you know? The United States. Really? I think it's maybe because we've been so problematic. <laughs> <laughs> in in South America, they've had a lot more progress with contact. In fact, in Brazil, the representative, a MUFON representative down there, had met with the military once a year, he and his team, to discuss all of this with the military. And in Peru, I've talked to a medical doctor who has also has a PhD, two PhDs, in addition to being a medical doctor. And he did a presentation for the MUFON's Experiencer Resource Team. And he said that he has investigated and studied people who claim that they have had contact. And he's looking for actual evidence of this. And he has evidence that in Peru, there are groups of people who do have face-to-face contact with these non-human entities who are doing like CE5, who are sending telepathic messages and who are able to call them in. And they see the craft rising up from the ocean, and flying toward them. There have been witnesses from the media. There have been many independent witnesses, and they are communicating. This is happening. There are CE5 experiments taking place around the world now. And what is CE5? Close Encounter of the Fifth Kind, where Ah. you try to call in a craft and communicate with the non-humans on that craft. And there is some success. The non-human entities say that they were not successful with government officials. So they decided to start with the human population from the ground up.
0: I have heard that. Yes, I actually have just recently heard that. And I had not heard that before. They've sort of given up on the governments because they're just corrupt.
1: So they're moving on to the (laughs) The regular... yeah, the lay people. The human population in an attempt to save our planet from ourselves, <laughs> I guess, and from those who would develop technology in order to harm others and to uh, exploit others. And instead of living cooperatively.
0: Right. How many species in your research have you found, do you think, just roughly?
1: Well, in our research, there were uh, certain types that were most prevalent. The, The tall grays and the short grays were number one in MUFON study. I also worked on the Edgar Mitchell free study on experiencers. And for them, the human types were the most prevalent, but they didn't separate the grays or they did separate the grays into two groups. We didn't. That would okay. be fun. So I worked on both studies. Human types were number two. So it's either grays or human types, depending upon uh, how you classify that. Insectoid, mantis types were third. Reptilians, fourth. Hybrids, only 22%. And the military working with non humans, or what looked like the military at least. 13 percent. But then there were other types as well that were less prevalent, like short blues, tall blues, the tall whites, tall goldens, uh, but also light beings. These light beings, that, you know, and kind of highly positive types who just appear and uh, they might appear as orbs or they might appear as human types who are glowing and highly spiritual, that is fairly prevalent, I have heard, from documentary producer.
0: Hmm. And do you think that practices like meditation and yoga and pr- you know, pranayama, deep breathing exercises, relaxation techniques? help you to be more open to these experiences? Or is
1: that not a factor? I think that it does help that when you raise your vibrational frequency through meditation, and you are able to feel your crown chakra tingling like it's electrified, and your entire body Tingling like it's electrified, you're able to communicate telepathically with non human intelligence. But it's very, very important to keep that very high rate of vibrational frequency because if you do things that are kind of stupid, like trying to call in non human entities, you might call in negative non humans even human types from the the astral realm who want to attach to you and want to scare you and want to make you depressed and will make you sick because they grow and gain strength through humans who provide a banquet for them so that they grow and become more negative while the human becomes sicker and sicker and finally dies
0: That's an excellent point, I think, for the listeners, everyone, that you have to maintain a certain level of vibration for a period of time even and be able to access that very easily before you should be calling anybody in from anywhere, whether it's the astral realm, inhuman entities, whatever, because whatever your vibration is at, if you can't hold it, you might invite something in that's not what you want.
1: Absolutely. And it's important to ask for protection. You ask for this divine energy from the higher realms or from source to protect you. And it's really important that you do protect yourself because people have had attachments occur. And it's it's not pleasant. Mm-hmm. And you and have to have them removed. But they can make you very ill. I meditate absolutely once a week with a group. I was meditating every night before I go to bed, but I've been really tied up with the business end of my life recently, and I find that I just can't meditate when I'm, when I'm doing these other things. There's something that changes me as mm. a person. And I no longer feel that energy in my crown chakra. And, but I know that when I can finally relax and get back to the me that I want to be, then I will be able to.
0: That's a great point, right? Like, this would not be a good time for you then to call in inhuman entities because you're not as spiritually grounded as usual,
1: correct? That's correct. Yes.
0: So it can come and go. It's just you, you sort of have to practice and lay that foundation. It doesn't mean you have to, you know, it t- doesn't take years and years and years. You just kind of have to be consistent about it.
1: Yes, that's correct. And it's always good if you can find someone to do a group meditation with and that that person is in contact with the higher beings. You know, it's a funny thing. I've talked about that. And now I'm having that electrical tingling in my crown chakra. <laughs>
0: That's great. Excellent. Yes, it is. You mentioned earlier the a couple of the major things that the message is from these beings, like don't destroy yourselves, we're trying to help you and to help you detoxify yourselves. Is there anything else you want the listeners to know about the message from these beings?
1: Yes, they they are, I believe, concerned about the possibility that we could destroy ourselves. And they uh, have been taking genetic material since the 1950s, when farmers would see craft landed in their field, and these non-humans taking soil samples and taking vegetation, taking animals, taking humans, taking human genetic material. It's all a process like Noah's Ark, in a sense, so that if we do end up, destroying this planet, they can reseed it eventually. And some people say that they are using it to seed other planets that they have terraformed. What's your thought about hybridization? I am aware that there is some hybridization in human babies who are born to parents who are experiencers and that the the fetus has been developed by them using the human woman and man's genetic material that it has been tweaked to create a more survivable human and then these children are planted into the womb and grow up. They're born with special gifts. They grow up being highly spiritual people on this planet and kind and gentle people as well. And a lot of people say that in the beginning of this process, they were seen on craft looking more gray than human. And it was all a long process. So a lot of experiencers said that in the early years. I question whether this process is still occurring. My whole team is questioning this because we haven't received reports of it recently.
0: And what about the idea of beings coming from other planets to come and help us, but not remembering and just looking like humans? Do you think that that's something that's happening?
1: They think they're
0: humans. they they're coming from other planets, and they Don't remember that they're from another planet and they're here to help us and they look, they grow up like any other human.
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. I've worked with people who have had that happen and I'll never reveal who they are because I'm worried what the government might do about them. Yeah, there are a lot of people who were non human, were extraterrestrials in a a previous lifetime, who have come to this planet in order to raise our consciousness and spirituality uh, to a level where we can survive. Were those
0: people able to remember that through conscious recollection, or
1: was it through hypnosis? If they remembered being told that on craft, it was conscious, but using Dolores Cannon's techniques, a lot of that information comes out through the past life regression. Gotcha.
0: Well, we've covered a lot. And my last question is, you know, what's the most powerful, profound, spiritual, paranormal, woo experience that you've ever had? And, you know, it might, in this case, it can be you, but also you have access to so many other people's stories. You could also say the craziest encounter that you heard from someone else as well, if you have something.
1: Yeah, there are many things from other experiences, <laughs> but I want to talk about an experience that I had. It's a man who lives in my town. His name is Kevin Briggs, and a lot of people are becoming aware of who he is. He's originally from England and he has had communication with these non human intelligences that look human and other various types who work as a council since he was eight years old. And he invited me and a team to study him. And we spent two years meeting once a month with him to study him and to speak with the non-humans that he was channeling. In fact, he didn't channel before he worked with us. (laughs) But I had the opportunity to meet the non-human, to have that higher vibrating gray come to me. I could feel that very strong presence. And to communicate telepathically with that non-human entity. So, and, and to look out my window at the lake and to see an invisible craft that was creating like a whirling sensation, a large whirling sensation over the lake, making the water whirl. So, and I had never seen that before or after with a duck or a boat or anything. So that was really like a, (laughs) wow, or a (laughs) woo moment for me. (laughs) That's mega woo. Yes. Yeah, it was. Having that dimensional entity coming into my environment, and it was a little frightening. But so I had to just get used to that. I mean, and it didn't take long, because I knew that I I had agreed for this to happen. And uh, and it did, yeah, I mean, and it felt wonderful, really, after I got over that couple of seconds of fear.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I love that you brought up that you were afraid, because I think we kind of miss that a lot. When I, when I talk to a lot of woo people that are experiencing things in other realms and and the astral world, that they often don't comment on the fact that, just because I study this, just because I do this all the time. Well, it doesn't mean that I'm not afraid. I'm still afraid, but I have to kind of step into that. And I have to remind myself every time I have these experiences. So I love that you said that. Yeah, that's great. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Anything else that you think is important
1: well, I think it's important for people to listen to the media, the mainstream media, what you're learning. If you are unfamiliar with what the government is doing in the soft disclosure of the ET presence on our planet, that's big news. That's never happened before. I'm hoping that it will continue. So that's, that's my advice. And to know they're not all bad. The the benevolent ones are trying to keep those who don't really care about us and want to just take from us in check. Good
0: to know. Yeah, that's really important, I think, for people to hear because honestly, over and over and over again, it's just that they're bad, bad, bad. But from everything that you said in this conversation, it, it makes sense that we would see in the media over and over again that they're bad because... It's it sounds like maybe our governments aren't so interested in in you know having this positive relationship with them. So Mm -hmm. for obvious reasons. Power. (laughs) True. True. (laughs) Greed. The wonderful things about humans. Right. Not
1: (laughs) no. no. (laughs) Not is correct.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Kathleen, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. I could probably talk to you for like two more hours, but I know you have a life. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Nice
1: speaking with you. You too. Definitely. Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: Talking with Kathleen made me realize just how little I understand about non-human entities and ufology and the various branches of government involved, not just in our country, but around the world. It's pretty mind-blowing. I asked Kathleen a few questions after the interview. My first one was, where's Betty's dress now? She said, Betty's dress is in the Betty and Barney Hill Archival Collection at the Milne Special Collections Library at the University of New Hampshire. I don't know about you, but I would love to see that dress. My second question was, How did your mom and aunt and uncle have so many connections to scientists and physicists? Kathleen's answer was, We had a neighbor who was a physicist. Many people in our area worked for companies in Massachusetts, and Betty was a social worker for the state. So she knew many people. She and Barney also knew people from Pease Air Force Base. She would attempt to find additional scientists through recommendations from her associates. And my last most important question was, Just to be super clear, what is the central message that's coming from the entities that you want to emphasize? Kathleen's answer was, the central message is their concern that our technological development is out of sync with our spiritual growth. When this occurs, it could lead to the destruction of all life on our planet. The non-human entities are particularly concerned with nuclear weapons and environmental collapse. That seems Pretty rational and understandable. And I have to say, I totally agree. How do we collectively increase our spiritual growth? What do we need to do to make sure we don't blow ourselves up? Along with a bunch of other spiritual investigators, I'm still searching for that. And let's just hope we can find it in time. I don't mean for that to sound too Debbie Downer. I really mean it to be hopeful. I think we have a chance here to dig deep within ourselves and reevaluate what it means to be alive on this planet today. And to also reevaluate what our priorities are, you can purchase the updated version of Kathleen's book, "Captured: The Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience." It's available in all formats on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. You can also get an autographed copy of it on her website at kathleen-marden.com. If you've had an experience with a non-human entity or a UFO, you can also check out Kathleen's book, "Extraterrestrial Contact." what to do when you've been abducted, and you can, of course, find all of her books and other information on her website. Per usual, that link will be in the show notes along with a link to MUFON's website as an extra resource for you. I know Kathleen drops a bunch of names in this episode, so there will also be a name cheat sheet in the show notes in case you get mixed up about who's who. Okay, all right. How can we further cultivate our spiritual growth to match that of our technological growth? marinating that for a while till next time y'all bye thank you for following the woo with me today if you love what you heard please make sure to subscribe to follow the woo wherever you listen to podcasts and if you're feeling particularly stoked about this show please leave a review and or rating You can also support this podcast by becoming a member of The Order of Woo, where you'll get community access and loads of extra goodies exclusively on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash follow the woo. The Order of Woo patrons bolster this podcast and community and allow for the creation of more content, products, services, and events over time. Every little bit helps, and I'm so grateful for the patrons who have joined the order already. If you've experienced something magical, mystical, or just downright weird and want to discuss it, or if you're interested in sharing your expertise, or if you want me to research a woo topic with you or for you, please email me at followthewoo at gmail.com. Join me next week for another woo topic. And remember, tell the truth, be nice to each other, and if it feels right, follow the woo. Thank you.